On the surface, all can look calm, denying the turbulent truth that lurks beneath. Things seem so good. Every ripple causes pain, division, and distraction, echoing out and churning up the waters of our faith. You'd think we would have figured it out by now. If only I'd spoken louder or taught clear his truth. Would these waves of confusion and doubt have stilled by now? It's all a haze, murky waters, and dimming light. Our divine purpose and mission seem so distant, almost out of reach. Where do we go from here? Yet in spite of the chaos, there's a stillness, a clarity, a beckoning to remember the timeless wisdom and teaching that echoes back to his loving light. Dear Church, Dear church, I'm glad that you're here today. Those of you in the room, those of you worshiping with us online, so grateful that you're here. And I hope that you're glad that you're here. And I really hope that at the end of the sermon, you are glad that you are here. That's uh, my prayer. Hey, if you were with us last weekend, you know that on the way out, you were given a Lego piece. And if you checked in with us online, we sent you a Lego piece. And remember, it's a choking hazard, so don't put that in your mouth. But this Lego piece um, was as a reminder, and, and uh, hopefully you remember what it was supposed to remind you of. I had multiple people throughout the week text me pictures of where they had their little Lego brick, you know, on their computer monitor or on their desk and different things. I had one individual send me a message and he says, okay, Bob, I put the Lego piece right in my carpet so in the morning when I step on it barefoot, it'll be a sharp reminder of your sermon, <laughs> which was not the way we wanted to remind you, but if you've ever had Legos around the house, you know the pain of which he speaks. The whole idea was based on this uh, phrase out of uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, where Paul says to this local congregation, he says, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that the whole God's spirit dwells within you? And the whole picture was that God has a temple that he dwells in, but it's not a building. It's these gatherings of his followers, of his believers, and this is the temple of God that he dwells in our midst. And the little brick was to remind us that each one of us are part of this temple that's being constructed, uh, this, this human Lego temple that God dwells in. Not only the importance of each one of us, but it's also as a reminder of what kind of materials is our life bringing to this building? And are there areas where God needs to refine because we saw that, that not only did he talk about the temple, Paul talking about the temple of the people, but he gave into individual bricks, individual Legos, individual people, these words out of 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, where he says, but each one, that's each one of us, should be careful how he builds, how he builds this temple. And then he talks about the materials that are being used. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, these three uh, elements that are valuable, three elements that are lasting, three elements that are imperishable, and three that are not lasting, not as valuable. What is the material of our life? That was last week. Now today what we will see as we get back into 1 Corinthians again is that Paul uses the same picture of the temple where God dwells, but he doesn't talk about it collectively as the body of Christ, of, of, of the congregation. 
He uses that same picture for each one of us individually. Each one of us is a temple, and we'll get into that. Now, before we go any farther, I, I need to make some statements. Last night, I called them disclaimers, but I'm not sure if it's a disclaimer as much as it is an acknowledgement. It really doesn't matter. That the, it's kind of a preemptive statement. Let me give you three of these preemptive statements. The first one is this. If you have children here, um, we are so grateful for our, our children's ministry. If you decide to bring children into this setting, that today, I'm just going to tell you that not, the title of the sermon is the talk. You can let your mind figure that one out. So if you feel like maybe this wouldn't be necessarily appropriate for my child, whatever age they are, I would just say we have fantastic children's ministries that give age-appropriate lessons, point them to Jesus, and you can take them even now. But I also will say this, if you're a naive parent, I don't think your child is going to hear anything today in this sermon that they haven't heard or worse at the school or with their friends or online. And this is at least going to be a biblical message. So that's my first statement. The second statement is this, that my sermon today is extremely old fashioned. My sermon today, some of you will say, He's irrelevant, he's out of touch, he doesn't get it. My sermon today will not be a popular sermon. It's a sermon, it's a message that you won't hear anywhere else. You will not hear this message from our government. You will not hear this message from the health department. You will not hear this message from public education. You definitely will not hear this message from our media and entertainment world. You won't hear this message from most of your friends, some of your family, and even some of your family and friends who are followers after Jesus. In fact, some of you, as you hear this message, you will disagree with me. Some of you will mildly disagree with me. Some of you will say, I don't, I don't buy into any of that. And I just want to say, I am so glad that you're here. And I pray that even if you don't agree, that you won't write me or the church off. Because the truth is, if you don't agree with me, I probably don't agree with you. And I haven't written you off. So that's what I met my invitation on that. This is not a popular message in our culture. And it's very old-fashioned. So that's my second statement. The third statement is this. Is I don't want in any, anywhere in this message to have this be a message of judgment of condemnation, or of guilt at all. What I want to do today is with God's word, I want to give some information, an explanation, and an invitation. So, so those are my, my preemptive talks, uh, uh, statements before I ever get into this, that if your children are here, they probably need to hear this. This is an old-fashioned sermon. It's not popular in our culture. You're not going to hear it anywhere else. And I don't want in any way there to be judgment. Now, I've been a little bit cryptic, a little opaque in what I'm talking about. If you haven't figured it out, let me just be right up front and just spell it out right from the beginning. And let me use lyrics to tell you what we're going to do today. Old lyrics. It's hard to believe that this was 33 years ago in 1990 when Salt and Peppa saying, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex and a hush fell across the crowd. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, uh, wow, it's going to be a rough day. Hey, uh, some of you are going, of all weeks, to come back to church. Glad you're here. I don't know if you saw this. A week ago at the, uh, at the American League uh, Division Series, game one between the, the Orioles and the, uh, the Rangers, a fan jumped out of the stands and ran onto the outfield wearing nothing but black socks, which is a good look, 
and a, a black uh, brief Speedo type uh, attire. That was all he had. The black socks, I'm not sure about, but the Speedo emblazoned across his crotch were these words, virginity rocks. <laughs> I thought about preaching this sermon like that. But wisdom prevailed. This is what I determined, that it would be unseeable, but definitely unforgettable. And it would be a shock. So I, I decided not to do that. But the whole message that we want to send today uh, and what we want to look at is a message that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, and it would have come across as a shock. Like, really, Paul, if you've been with us in this series, you know the culture, you know the values, you know the ethos of, of Corinth. This port city where sailors are coming and going with spare time and extra money and all the things that happen when sailors are in town. You know that there was a, a very lax moral uh, ethic or code in that, in that uh, actually the whole culture, but in that city to where sexual immorality was not only accepted, it was expected and it was celebrated. There was that, that word that was made up in the ancient Greek language. It was a verb called Corinthiazo, which meant to act like a Corinthian, which meant very loose morals. There was the, the term of a Corinthian girl, which was not a very uh, flattering term uh, of a, a woman, that if she was a Corinthian girl. And on top of that, as we saw last week, there was a, up on the Acro Corinth, up on the hill, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And during the day, it employed temple prostitutes to engage in cultic sex acts as acts of worship to Aphrodite. And so the whole culture, that's what you have going on here. The last time I was in Corinth was 2008. We were in Corinth, we were at a museum, and there in the museum, there's all these relics that they found, all these statues and all these uh, different things, beautiful uh, architecture of, of these statues and such. But we came into one room, and the room were some of the ruins or some of the excavations, some of the findings that they found at the temple or the altar or the shrine to uh, a god called Asclepius. Uh, As As Asclepius was the god of health and medicine. And what we, what we saw there, and our guide pointed out, there would be like these pieces of, of, of terracotta, like a leg or a foot or a hand, not like broken off from a statue. There were those things, but these, these were like just body parts. And the whole concept was that as they, people would come with an ailment to this temple of Asclepius, that they would bring a, a replication of the area that was needing healing. And our guide said, when they did the excavations, they found large numbers of these terracotta votives that were genitals. And the, the conclusion was that the venereal diseases were so widespread in Corinth because of the lax morals, they would come for healing and they would bring these little, these little clay representations of that. In Corinth, sex was seen as the highest good with the lowest value. In a hedonistic society where indulgence and pleasure and, and, and all that, that is the highest goal, that's the highest good that you would have that, but it was at the lowest value. It was cheap with anyone, anywhere, as often as, as in, in the temples, in, in, with the prostitutes, it was, it was that. And some of these people that were in the Corinthian church, the Corinthians, not the Jewish ones, but the Gentiles, they were raised with that mindset. They were raised in that setting. 
They had practiced that lifestyle. They had been up on the hill to Aphrodite. They had been to the prostitutes. They had been in a culture. They had engaged in that. And then they found Jesus and they were brought into the church. The problem is that some of the culture came with them. And some of the former lifestyle was continuing on with them. And Paul references this in this letter, we won't, we won't get into earlier in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about the lifestyle that is not befitting of the kingdom of God. And he gives 10 ideas, 10, 10 topics. And it's not an exhaustive list. It's not a complete list. But of the 10 that he lists off, four or five of them have to do with sexual immorality. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, and here is his list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. He said, this is the life that you lived. This is who you were. But, but... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's not that they were irreligious and now they became religious. That was a part of their religion. In fact, historically, if you look over world history and world religions, historically, religion has never been about marital fidelity or sexual purity. That just simply isn't the case. With the pagan religions, there was none that ever taught marital fidelity or sexual purity. I mean, it was evident there in, in Corinth, but even beyond. And you can understand why. If a religion is a man-made um, kind of a, a belief system, if a man is thinking, this is a God, and the God is like a supersized me, what do I like? Sex, food, and wine. So our God must want even more sex, food, and wine because he's supersized. That's how they would think. And if I'm going to create a goddess, well, then she's going to obviously be a love monster because that's what would benefit me more. So all the pagan religions, none of them had sexual fidelity or purity as a part of their code. Even to this day, anytime you see a cult that rises up, very often, a part of their belief is this sexual freedom, if not for everybody, at least for the leader of the cult. This is almost always the case. When the, the leader, the king, the, the father of this little group, hears a word from God, almost always that leader has multiple women or the freedom to spread his seed, to develop his divine uh, power. It's all the way through. What's interesting is that God's people have always been distinguished by a sexual ethic. Always. This is one of the things that differentiates the Judeo-Christian uh, following of, of God from every other religion, every other pagan religion out there. And the reason is because in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we believe that God created sex. He created it as a gift it's very, very valuable and precious and fragile. And because it is such a valuable, precious gift, God places some parameters around it to protect this gift and those who it was given to. 
And from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Eve and Adam sees her and is like, wow, she's there. All he's ever known is, you know, seen animals everywhere. Here's a woman for the first time. And he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There is something deep and very uh, to the depth of our personhood, to the depth of our soul of this idea that God would say the two would become one flesh. It's more than just a physical act. It says, and the man and the woman were naked and unashamed, the way that God ordained things in the context of the marriage. Well, Moses comes along and he goes up on the mountain to get these commandments from God. If Moses was making this up, don't you think Moses would have brought down a law that actually gave more freedom sexually? That's what any man would do if he's making up the rules. But Moses comes down with these 10 commandments and one of them is thou shall not commit adultery. And another one is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then in the Levitical laws, there's many parameters around sex and sexual activity and sexual behavior, not because it's dirty or nasty, but because it's holy and special. And Jesus comes along and he quotes back to the original in Genesis chapter 2 when Jesus says, you know, haven't you heard? This is why it says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. He, he quotes Genesis chapter 2, and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So then the early church, you know, at first it was just the Jewish people that were followers of Jesus. And it was really easy because this was the sexual ethic of the, the Jewish belief, of the Torah, of the Levitical laws. This is what they had. But now there was Gentiles coming in and they, didn't, they weren't raised with this. And what do we do with them? Because they have a different mindset, a different worldview, a different value system when it comes to sexuality. And there was this struggle with this. And finally, there was this council in Jerusalem. You can read about this in Acts 15, where it's like, you know, some people were saying they need to become Jewish. They need to follow all 613 of our laws. And finally, James, the brother of Jesus says, boy, I don't know. I don't think we should make it difficult for them to enter into the kingdom of God. How about these four? Two of them are, are dietary rules that would be better for them, actually, physically. One of them had to do with idolatry. And he says, and this one they should abstain from sexual immorality. Because that was just a part of their understanding. It was part of their life. So when Paul writes these churches, he reminds them of this over and over again. When he writes to the churches in, in the region of Galatia, he talks about the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And the first one, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. At the end, he talks about orgies. He says, those are the acts of the sinful nature, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, all these things. When he writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality amongst God's people. When he writes to the churches in Thessalonica, he says, it is God's will that you not be sexually immoral. So in the, when he comes to Corinth, where this was rampant and widespread, he addresses it again and again and again, because God's people have always been distinguished by a sexual ethic, different from the rest of the world, different from the other religions. There's a man named uh, Tom Holland, not Spider-Man Tom Holland, a different Tom Holland. Tom Holland, Holland, who is a historian and an author, and very important that you hear this, and an atheist. 
And Tom Holland loves uh, ancient history, especially from the Greco-Roman world. And about a year and a half ago, he wrote a book that came out uh, called Dominion. Big book, like 600 pages. It's called Dominion. And the subtitle of his book, Dominion, is this. How the Christian Revolution remade the world. Remember, he's an atheist. This book, this 600-page book, is how the Christian Revolution remade the world. And this is kind of the premise of the book, is that he loved the whole ancient history in the Roman Empire. But one of the things he began to realize is how different the value system and the ethos of the Roman Empire was from our own. Because in the, in the Roman Empire, like children were, were throwaways, especially young girls. They were left what was referred to as exposure. They were left out to die. And no one thought anything of that. And not only that, but women were a commodity. They were to be used for men's pleasure and they could be discarded as well as slaves. In addition to that, the, the weak and the poor, it, w- it, was, it was not a noble thing to help someone who was weak or poor. That would actually make you look weak and poor. And so that, no one would do that kind of thing. In addition to that, there was intense cruelty, torture, and even the gladiatorial games where they rejoiced in the bloodshed of lives that were lost in the arena as entertainment. And he began to think about that whole thing, and he began to think, that's so foreign to our world today. Not just foreign because it's in a different country, and not just foreign because it's from a different millennia. It's because we don't even think that way. What got us from there to here, to where social justice is actually something that we love and we pursue, where there's actually helping the poor and the weak is, is a thing that is seen as very noble. Even if we may not practice it, at least an ideal, we hold on to that, where there's love and there's compassion, where humility, uh, where, where these things are, are lifted up and, and they're honored as, as good things where altruism is actually something that we would respect and admire in someone, where where there's equality, where there's tolerance of differences. None of that existed in the Roman world. And he began to think, how is it that we went from there to here? And as he looked back as an atheist historian, he looked back over history and he pinpointed what made the difference. It all changed When a man named Jesus, a carpenter from Galilee, was crucified and his followers followed his example, at that point, all of human history shifted and changed. The values changed. The ethos changed. What we see is beautiful changed. And the cruelty, at least in ideal, changed. And it all hinges back to Christianity. He's an atheist. I mean, he's given the greatest of defense for the, the gospel. And he also talked about the change that Christianity brought to this whole sexual, immoral ethic or lack thereof. He writes this, Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confines sexual, sexuality within monogamy, Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. This from an atheist. That the church, the followers of Jesus, influenced the culture. And isn't that what Jesus called us to when he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. 
But what happens when culture influences Christianity? When suddenly the values and the ethos of our world begin to make their way into the followers of Jesus, into the church, and suddenly we look a little more like Corinth than Christ. And this was the case in the Corinthian church on a lot of different fronts. That's why he writes this letter. There's so many different topics he has to address with them. But today we're looking specifically at the topic with the sexual immorality that had made its way into the church. This wasn't a a one-off little circumstance. It wasn't a, you know, a hidden thing. It was very well known. In fact, in his first letter that he wrote to them, which we don't have, but he references it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, in the other letter that I wrote to you, and he talks about how they should treat those who are living this lifestyle that is sexually immoral. And he makes this very clear, and I need us to hear this. He is not condemning the culture. He's correcting the church. This is a big distinction because so often today, Christians want to get out there and change, you know, and everybody and legislate and mandate. How can you expect non-believers to live up to a godly standard? They don't even know Jesus, but the church better be living up to it. And that's what he says. I'm not here to try and change Corinth. I'm here to make sure that the church is being who we've been called. You have called us higher as we sing today. You've called us deeper. We're different. We're saints. And he points this out. And so what happens is he addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're only going to look at that briefly. Then he takes a break and he talks about lawsuits, which we're not even talking about today. And then he revisits it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about it generally and then he gives one specific thing. This isn't the only thing that's happening, but one specific thing. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, he writes this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Remember, he's talking to the church. And of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. And he gives an example. A man has his father's wife. He's saying there is some sexual immorality, and that's bad enough, but there's some stuff going on in the church that even the outside world looks and goes, Ew, really? That's happening? That apparently some guy has his trophy wife and his son is hooking up with his stepmom and it's not just a one-time deal. It says, has his father's wife. That this is ongoing. And while Paul could have railed on this situation, which it deserved, he's more concerned with the attitude of the church. He says, this is going on. The surrounding world is looking and saying, whoa, they're messed up. And you as a church, you're not aghast, you're not appalled, you're not even addressing this. Actually, you're kind of proud of this. Like, like, look how much grace we have. We allow this to go on because we're all about grace. This, is, this shouldn't be the case in this lifestyle. Now, we can read that and hear all that and say, whoa, that Corinthian church, they were a mess. And they were. But maybe we as the church need to look in the mirror as well. In recent uh, findings reported by Pew Research, this was just in the last year, Pew Research found this. Half of U.S. Christians say casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. Let me just read that again. 
half of people who refer to themselves as Christians in the United States say that casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. Hey, we're adults. We've talked about this. We've agreed on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. take your message to the kids. They need to hear this, but we're adults. You know, listen, I've been married before. I'm divorced. I'm not going to get pregnant. I mean, you know, those days are gone. Wait, the, half of the U.S. Christians take that attitude. Hey, we're, we're adults. We know what we're doing. We've talked this through. We're going to be responsible. We're going to be safe. No one's going to get pregnant. No one's going to get a disease. And hey, if they do, there's abortion and there's pills for this stuff. That's the mindset of half of the United States Christians, which, and again, this is where some of us will disagree. Some of you would fall into that camp, and I'm so glad that you're here. So did I mention that my sermon was going to be a little bit old-fashioned today? All right. So let's go. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as I mentioned, Paul's already referenced this in chapter 5. He circles back around to it in chapter 6. When he does this, he brings out some, some phrases that apparently the Corinthian church were using to justify their lifestyle. It would be like this. Sometimes you've heard this phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Which kind of means, hey, listen, there's some stuff that I wouldn't normally do in Bellingham, wouldn't do if my kids were here, wouldn't do if my spouse was here, but it's girls' weekend. Hey, the guys are going to Vegas, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Hey, I'm on a business trip, I happen to be in Vegas, and yeah, I've got work to do, but you know, and it justifies like, like yeah, I wouldn't normally do this, and I know it's probably not right, but it's Vegas, baby. When in Vegas. It was those kind of statements that, that they were using to justify. One of them was where they would just say, hey, everything is permissible to me. We won't even get into that. We might hit that next week. But there was another phrase that they would use. And he points this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. In quotation, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That was their phrase that they were using. And he says, yeah, 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 but God will destroy them both. It's this whole idea that, hey, it's an appetite. This is their phrase, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. When you're hungry, you feed yourself. When you're thirsty, you drink. Uh, when there's a craving, you satisfy it. When there's lust, you indulge. That was the idea, it's just an appetite. We treat this just like every other appetite, just like food, it's no different. It's what our body wants. There was another piece that was at play in this one as well. It was a mentality of dualism, that the body and the soul or spirit were separate. The body was bad. The soul was good. The soul had been saved by Jesus. The body was going to die. The soul would be with Jesus for eternity. The body would die and rot. So the idea was, since the body is like a Tyvek throwaway disposable suit, it doesn't really matter what you do with it, because at the end of the day, you're going to throw it away. Anyway, you don't try and keep it safe or preserved. You can do whatever you want with your body because it doesn't matter because my soul's right. My spirit's right. And Paul addresses that as well. In verse 13, in the second half, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord 
for the body. Now, I'm going to skip some verses. I would encourage you to read it on your own. But he starts talking about how the body is not just a throwaway piece of Tyvex. In fact, later in chapter 15, he'll talk a lot about the resurrection and the resurrected body. And he also talks about how our body is one with Christ, that in our bodies, we are a part of Christ. And would you ever have Christ sleep with a prostitute? By no means. Are you kidding me? He says, and yet your body is a part of Christ. And then in verse 18, he gives the most practical advice that the Corinthians and maybe the Cornwallians that we need to hear as followers of Jesus. Such practical advice. Verse 18, he says this, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, right now, some of you are going, but what constitutes sexual immorality? That's just how we operate, isn't it? I don't want to be mean here, but you remember when Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky thing was? And he starts saying, well, define is. Seriously? But we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. Okay, so what actually is sexual immorality? I mean, what, what is categorically put in that? I mean, because maybe this is, you know, but it's not sexual immorality. The word he uses here, the Greek word here is pornea, which is where we get our word pornography or pornographic. Pornea is the, the broadest covering of sexual sin. It would cover all manner of sexual sin. So you say, well, but what about that? Yes. Well, okay, but in this, yeah, well, yes. Well, but if we just, yes. It covers it. So just to make sure we're clear, let's go to this, this, the lowest common denominator on this. It covers a whole bunch of sexual sin, but it, let's at least talk about sexual intercourse and what sexual immorality in the Bible with God's standard, sexual intercourse is for one man and one woman in the, in the bounds of a covenant marriage. Anything outside of that, sexual immorality. Now this covers a whole lot more than this. And he says, flee from sexual immorality. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we flee or do we flirt? Because sometimes we flirt with sexual immorality. Let me tell you how this works out. In our mind, we say, well, I would never do that. But I might think about it. I might wish I could have. I might fantasize about it. I might watch entertainment that glorifies that. I might read about that. I, I, I might in my mind or just, you know, in my attitude of all my 50 shades of whatever, I might just think, yeah, I would never do that. But man, it's kind of entertaining, kind of fun to think about. Kind of, and we flirt. He says, no, you need to flee. That word flee in the original Greek, it's the, it's the present tense imperative. It should more accurately be translated, be fleeing. In other words, take off and don't stop running. Run, forest, run is how it should be translated. Just go. Let, let me try and illustrate the difference between flirting and fleeing. This might be a really poor illustration. I can, I can pass it for next service. But about a year and a half ago, our house, praise God, was cat-free. And then my wife bought a kitten. This little kitten is um, Siamese and Persian, so it's a long-haired Siamese. And, and I'm okay with this. It's not a real much, not a people cat at all. I'm just not cuddly or whatever. His name's Miko. Her name's Miko. And sometimes when my wife, who has a, a better relationship with Miko than I do, tries to pick up Miko, Miko will jump just out of arm's reach. 
And then my wife will move in and she will jump just out of arm's reach. And it's a game for her. Kind of playing hard to get, like, can't get me. And, and it's just a game, just kind of flirting with my wife. And actually, Mikko actually wants to be caught by my wife so she can give it a treat and brush or whatever. But when I try to pick up Miko, Miko runs and doesn't stop till she's downstairs underneath the kitchen table or upstairs underneath the bed where I can't reach her. That's the difference between fleeing and flirting. Miko flirts with Doreen. She flees from me. And Paul says, run, take off running. Don't stop. Get out of here. Flee. And some of you are saying, see, this is what I don't like about religion or Christianity or church. All this, thou shalt not have any fun. Thou shalt ruin your life. Thou shalt, you know, thou shalt not do anything. Just don't. And some of you were raised that way. Don't do this. Why? Just don't. Because. And unfortunately, I think we've done a disservice when we just say, well, the Bible says so, or I'm telling you, or it's not good. It's not that sex is bad or dirty. It's that it's holy. And the problem, kind of like, and again, all due respect, when Nancy Reagan's anti-drug campaign was simply just say no, that didn't work real well. Why not? And Paul says, let me give you three reasons. Let me not just tell you what, let me tell you why. And he lists off three reasons why he wants the Corinthians and us to flee from sexual immorality. All right, back to verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. To which somebody said, no, wait, wait, wait. I thought a sin was a sin. We've all sinned, fallen short. A sin separates us from God. There's no degrees of sin. Yes, correct. So what is the deal here? God just hates sex. God just judges sex. God, God hates it if you're sexually immoral. God will judge you and send you to hell and all that. No, 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 no. It's not that at all. What he's saying is that sexual immorality, sexual sin, is not worse than any other sin but in its, it's in a category all of its own of the consequences of that sin. That this two becoming one, the sex is at our deepest soul personhood. And it's not that the sin is worse, but the consequences are. And Paul confronts a myth that we still hold to this day. Sex is not just physical. It's not just physical. Sometimes we think, oh, it's, it's just like, you know, it's the appetite. It says, no. You know, it's just biology. We're just exchanging bodily fluids. No, it's not. There's a connection that's far deeper than that, at the deepest part of our personhood. And we know this. And, and I just want to say, I don't want in this next few minutes my, my goal is not to trigger any guilt or hurt for some of you. But some questions, these came out of a book called The New, New Rules of Love, Sex, and Dating. If sex is purely physical, why is it that children and teenagers that experience sexual abuse have scars so deep and wounds and pains and unhealth at a deep level that sometimes it takes years of therapy and maybe sticks with them the rest of their life. If it was just physical, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, would it? If sex was just physical, why is, that, why is it that rape 
is so violating, so devastating. I mean, I mean, if it was just physical, ultimately it wouldn't, I mean, it'd be bad, it'd be like being beat up, but it just, you get over it, you heal. No, no, no. If it's just physical, why is it that people's deepest regrets, their darkest secrets, their greatest hurts, usually revolve around something having to do with sex. Something they don't want anyone to know. It's so dark, it's so secret. If it's just physical, it's not that big of a deal. If it's just physical, why would infidelity be such a betrayal in marriage? Trying to rebuild trust, some marriages would not make it through. And if they did, some would never be healthy again. So we understand this. It's not just physical. It's not just satisfying an appetite. It's not just biology. And it's not because it's dirty. It's because it's holy. So Paul addresses these. A couple verses earlier, he says this in verse 16. He says, do you not know, he loves that phrase, do you not know that he who unites, and there's a very key word there, unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. And they're going, whoa, 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 who said anything about uniting? No, we're not uniting, we're hooking up. We're, we're just, we're swiping right. Hey, leave a tender moment alone, as it were. I mean, just come on, this is just something we do. And he says, no, 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 it's not. It's much deeper than that. And you unite here, and unite here, and unite here, and unite here. It, it changes you. It impacts you. And don't you think, if God created sex, and God knew the parameters of this incredible gift, and God was good, that a good God would want to protect and provide Maybe God isn't trying to ruin our lives and spoil our fun, but trying to protect us and to provide the healthy life. Do we trust him? Is it possible that he knows more than we do? And do we believe that he is good? So he says, here's the why. It's not just physical. Then he gives another why. Verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Last week we saw this temple that it was the body of people, but he says now your physical body is a temple. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And they knew, they were surrounded by all these temples to gods and goddesses and shrines and altars, and they knew that people would go, and what happened in those temples was worship to that deity. He says, what happens in your body, especially in this arena of sexuality, is it worshiping you or is it worshiping God? Because you are that temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells right within you. And our Heavenly Father created you in his image. And Jesus redeemed you to call you his own. And the Holy Spirit dwells right within you. You are his temple. You see how, what happens in the other temples, but not in this temple. And then he gives one more reason why 
the end of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20, he says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Hey, my body, my choice. I can do with my body whatever I want. Don't, don't try to tell me what to do with my body. This is my body. If you're a follower after Jesus, no, it's actually not. It's not just about your needs and your wants and your desires and your body. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. And the price, as it says in 1 Peter, was not gold and silver or anything else. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the price that was paid. You know, last week when we talked about gold, silver, and costly stones, we saw how it pointed back to David, and I gave you a little sing-song. If David gave his best, how could we give any less? And now at this temple... The price is not gold and silver and costly stones. And maybe we could say, since Jesus paid the highest price for his holy temple, not for vice, he paid that price for us. And then Paul gets to the end of all this, and he comes to this conclusion. Middle of verse 20, he says, therefore, therefore, with all that in mind, the fact that you are called to be saints, you're, you, together you're the temple of God, that, that, that you've been redeemed, that, that sex isn't just physical, that it's much deeper than that and want to save you from that pain, that, that, that your body is a temple and that you were purchased at the highest price. Therefore, he says, with all that in mind, he comes to this conclusion, and this is for everybody. This is all skate. He says, everyone needs to know this. And I'm saying everyone in this room and everyone watching online, everyone needs to hear this. Male and female, young and old, Okay, married and single, divorced and widowed, I'll even say straight and same-sex attracted, Corinthian and Cornwallian. This is for all of us. Therefore, he says, here's the conclusion. Honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. You're a temple. You've been redeemed. You're different. This differentiates us from the rest of the world. It always has, and it still does. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, Romans 6.1. There's a difference between who you were and who you are. This is how you once were but you've been redeemed, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been called higher, you've been adopted, you're a son or a daughter. Hey, listen, no guilt here. What about from this day forward? Flee honor, flee sexual immorality, honor God with your body. And I know some of you don't agree with me. I'm so glad that you're here. Somebody's saying, you're right, this is an old-fashioned message. Yes, indeed it is. But he's called us to this because God wants only the very best for us. Flee from sexual immorality. Honor God with your body. And for some of you, that may mean breaking up right now in a relationship that is not honoring to God. For some of you, that might mean moving out until you get married. For some of you, that might mean changing what you use for entertainment, what you're reading, what you're viewing. I don't know what it is, 
But I do know this. God created you in his image, and he wants the very best for you. And he says, flee sexual immorality and honor God with your body.